daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired. This is World Today. Hello and welcome to World Today. I'm Ding Han in Beijing. Coming up, Chinese Premier Li Qiang is in Kyrgyzstan for SCO meeting and an official visit. Australian and U.S. leader discuss Pacific infrastructure and critical minerals in Washington D.C. China will issue 137 billion U.S. dollars worth of sovereign debt to support economy, and the International Monetary Fund says Germany will eclipse Japan as the world's number three economy in 2023. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on our previous episodes, download our podcast. By searching "World Today," Chinese Premier Li Qiang is in Kyrgyzstan to attend a meeting of the Council of Heads of Government of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. Li is also paying an official visit to the Central Asian country. The Chinese Premier said on Tuesday that China looks forward to working with other SCO members to inject new impetus into regional peace, stability, and development. In the meantime, he has also said that China is ready to work with Kyrgyzstan to deepen mutual trust and create new highlights for cooperation. So, for more on this issue, I earlier had a talk with Dr. Wang Jing, associate professor with Northwestern University in Xi'an, China. Thank you very much for joining us today, Dr. Wang. According to China's Foreign Ministry. Li Qiang, together with other participating leaders, will follow through on the consensus reached at this year's SCO summit, exchange views on the SCO development strategy, and formulate cooperative measures in security, trade, connectivity, and people-to-people exchanges. So, in your understanding, what kind of development strategy does the Shanghai Cooperation Organization need right now? I think a lot of、uh, aspects of、uh, development strategy、uh, is needed for expand the cooperative mechanism for、uh, SDOs. Because traditionally, we know that SDO originally was a platform or the mechanism that、uh, worked for the、uh, security issue. Or originally, it was a very、uh, multilateral, very loose multilateral. Uh, uh, the coordinated mechanism for the border management, for the border dispute management, as well as、uh, the, the border control、uh, system. So、uh, it transformed successfully from this very small, this very concrete、uh, security and political、uh, system to the、uh, to the very comprehensive level and the platform for the. On the one hand,、uh, a lot of aspects of the cooperation、uh, gets、uh, included. Into this mechanism, and on the other hand,、uh, many, many more states now join this SDO. It's become the、uh, uh, cover the region from China, from the,、uh, the East Asia and Central Asia now into the West Asia. So actually, it's on the one hand expanded uh, both uh, uh, geog-、uh, geographically, and also on the other hand, it's also expanded uh, covers uh, by covering a lot of other aspects. So I think in the future,、uh, politically, we I think this. The SDO could be further included more、uh, measures to concentrate、uh, and to strengthen to consolidate the the, the, the trust between different parties, the different sides, different member states.、Uh, mm-hmm. More dialogues could be held, more、uh, mechanisms could be encouraged to kind of the dialogue. And on the other hand, a lot of other economic aspects、uh, could also be included, such as、uh, economic cooperation platform, economic dialogue, economic forum. And also,、uh, we cannot forget the Council Exchanges Forum, which is also very useful、uh, for the future understanding of different peoples between China, Central Asia, and other SEO members. And also, it will encourage more cooperative opportunities for the member states. So, I think、uh, it's, the prospect of the future for SEO is very broad, and this is very positive.、Uh, mm. uh, the member states of it will will be willing to do it. Okay,、mm. so China hosted a China Central Asia summit in Xi'an earlier this year, which is, of course, a signal that Beijing is increasingly seeking to strengthen ties with Central Asian countries. So, why do you think Central Asia matters to China, and what do you think is the role of the SCO in terms of helping strengthen the ties between China and Central Asia? I think Central Asia is also very key to China's future development. 
the prospects because on the one hand, SCO is a very neighbor. Uh, SCO, especially the Central Asian states under the SCO platform, is very neighbors for China, a close neighbor to China. So uh, if China wants to uh, get uh, much more to cooperative opportunities, Central Asian states will be the key uh, members. And on the other hand, I think that SCO will offer the very important platform for the future cooperation. Especially, there will be a lot of opportunities to be coordinated under the SCO mechanism, under the many disputes will be managed under the SCO, and also many common ground parties fixed under the SCO. So SCO will play the key role in the future between China and Central Asian states relations. Hmm. So, with regard to、uh, Premier Li Qiang's official visit to Kyrgyzstan, as well as the bilateral ties between China and this particular country, now China is, of course,、uh, Kyrgyzstan's top trading partner. In 2022, there was an increase of more than 105 percent in the two-way trade, and in the first eight months of this year, the, this particular increase in terms of the two-way trade was nearly 28 percent. So, what do you think the growth momentum here tells us about?、Uh, first of all, the motivations. Uh, for the China and the Central Asian states, especially between China and Kyrgyzstan, is great. So this kind of the potential, actually, the motivation、uh, encourages the, the two sides to a very high and、uh, quick growth of their bilateral trade volume. And on the other hand, I think the potential for the two countries also、uh, of the cooperation and their trade volume is also it's also strong because. Uh, because now the two countries, they have already got,、uh, we have already got very、uh, close relations. Now we also have the very close、uh, cooperative multilateral、uh, platforms, and also we have already encouraged,、uh, we are encouraged the two countries are both encouraged in the future to close、uh, closely, much more closely cooperate with each, with each other. So actually, I think more and more opportunities will emerge. That to some extent, also the very large extent, to explain the very、uh, faster trade growth volume. Hmm. So actually, some、um, some analysts are expecting China and Kyrgyzstan to discuss the China Kyrgyzstan Uzbekistan railway during、uh, Premier Li Qiang's visit this time around. Now, of course, this particular project we are talking about here has been in the making, has been in the planning for quite some time already. But currently, it appears. That these three countries involved here are yet to reach any agreement in terms of the significant financing issue. So, in principle, Doctor Wan, do you think the construction of this project should go ahead as planned? I, I think、uh, the both sides, I mean, China, Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, all the these three countries、uh, still have the very strong willingness and still have the very strong interest to push this plan forward. Uh, but as you mentioned, yes, there was maybe some kind of obstacles, especially we are talking about the the cross the multilateral cross border railway、uh, system. And we're not talking about the kind of how to construct it, how the finance come from, how the economic resources come from. But we're also talking about how to overcome the obstacles of construction and how to、uh, overcome the difficulties uh, uh, of coordination between between different countries and also the standards of the railway. And as well as the very、uh, management system of the railway station may also defer. These are all the major obstacles trying, that these countries trying to co- coordinate it to、uh, overcome. But in the future, that we, we have already witnessed the very strong motivations and interest of the three countries to cooperate very closely. And also, I think in the future, this railway system will be mentioned and will be pushed forward again under the encouragement of both. Uh, all these three countries, as well as the cooperative mechanism of SEO. Hmm. So, talking about the mutual political trust between China and Kyrgyzstan, of course, when we talk about this area, a key principle in China's own foreign policy over the years is refraining from intervening in other countries' internal affairs, other countries' domestic politics. Kyrgyzstan was actually、uh, once a victim of foreign intervention and a foreign-backed color revolution. If we think about the so-called tulip revolution in this country back in the year two thousand and five, 
So,、um, if we take a look at the situation right now, do you think China is able to play any role in terms of helping guard this country from foreign intervention and foreign, you know, foreign inflicted、uh, color revolution attempts? I think China and its all its neighbors, we share the very、uh, strong principle.、Uh, is, is that the strong principle is that both China and our neighbors. Uh, strongly oppose any uh, foreign uh, inter- interventions and any uh, foreign uh, attempts to overthrow the internal political system through the kind of so-called color revolution. Because we believe it's actually against the, the willingness of people. It's against also the,、uh, the the benefit of the the, the the local people there. So I think on the one hand, China and Kyrgyzstan、uh, and other Central Asian countries. We could further co- closely, very closely cooperate with each other to share this principle and make it much stronger among the societies. And on the other hand, we know that China and the situation states have already shared the very uh, close uh, the multi-cooperative、uh, mechanism for the political trust and for the political cooperation, security cooperation,、uh, and all this kind of the cooperation. I think altogether will form a kind of the forces. That could、uh, resist the, any attempts of foreign interventions of forming the so-called color revolution, both in China and as well as in other Central Asian countries. So, actually,、uh, under the principle of non-intervention of other states' internal affairs, China and other、uh, the Central Asian neighbors will do together to、uh, to work closely to resist any attempts of of, of the foreign、uh, intervention and the foreign. Uh, foreign, uh, foreign attempts to overthrow their own regimes under the under the so-called flag of so-called the color revolution in the future. That was Dr. Wang Jing, associate professor with Northwest University in Xi'an, China. You are listening to World Today. Stay tuned. Hello, my name is Alessandro Golombievski Teixeira. I'm a professor of public policy and management at Tsinghua University in Beijing. I am a great listener of the world today. In my opinion, the world today is one of the best China radio programs. In the world today, we can get the best news and analysis in what is happening now in the world. So please come to join us. You are listening to World Today. I'm Ding Hanin Beijing. The U.S. and Australia have announced plans to cooperate on critical minerals and bolster Pacific Islands infrastructure. A senior Biden administration official says Australian Prime Minister Anthony Albanese's ongoing trip to Washington D.C. is focusing on how to broaden the U.S.-Australia security alliance into a broader economic and technological partnership. The two sides will flesh out details regarding further cybersecurity cooperation, in addition to a five billion U.S. dollar Microsoft investment in Australia. In the meantime, a critical mineral task force to boost private investment in Australia's rare earth industry is set to be a centerpiece for Albanese's Tuesday schedule. So, joining us now on the line is Professor Joseph Siracusa, Dean of Global Futures with Australia's Curtin University. Welcome back. So, Professor, let's begin by talking about this planned additional investment by Microsoft to help Australia. Boost its,、uh, let's say, cybersecurity、uh, capability. According to Microsoft, this is the company's single biggest investment in Australia during its 40-year、uh, presence in this country. So, why is Australia interested in letting Microsoft to play a vital role here? Well,、um, the uh, the Microsoft uh, investment, it's I think it's five billion dollars. Uh, is part of、uh, Microsoft's business plan. They have、uh, a presence in Australia. They have a certain share of the cloud and AR mark,、uh, AI market, and、uh, now they are going to provide Australia what they call cybersecurity. That is, they're going to protect、uh, Australian businesses and the Australian people from、um, uh, interference uh, from outsiders getting into their data. They're going to. Uh, Uh, provide uh, uh, cover for the government as well. I mean, Microsoft does not work hand in glove with the American government. Now, Albanese used the Microsoft investment plan 
as part of his package in going to Washington. Uh, not many, I mean, Australian prime ministers love to go to Washington. They love the pomp and cer- ceremony and all the rest of it. I think the last one there was Scott Morrison a number of years ago. And I think uh, Biden told Albanese he was welcome to come to uh, America after Biden had to cancel a trip to Australia during a congressional crisis about money supply. So it's it's not as um, as tightly knit as you might think it is. It isn't uh, you know the great uh, combination between Microsoft, Australia, and, and and America. Microsoft has a business plan. Albanese grabbed onto it and he announced it at the embassy today, and that um, you know tells his people back home that. Um, you know, he's he's doing important work in America. He's developing you know, economic contacts and that kind of thing. And, and it's it's a chance to him to, to show, put some runs on the board. Now, Professor, do you think, frankly speaking, this would mean that Australia's cybersecurity data will be increasingly falling in the hands of a foreign company? I'm asking this question because, you know, from China's perspective, Chinese people would have a question mark here. Why uh, Microsoft is allowed into Australia's cybersecurity network, whereas Huawei has been kicked out of the 5G network in Australia. Huawei and Microsoft are both foreign companies in Australia. Why are they treated in such a drastically different manner? Well, that's a terrific question. And it's a, it's a political decision to accept Microsoft. It's assumed that Microsoft isn't going to steal people's data or the rest of it. And of course, Microsoft sweetened the deal by saying that uh, this investment will create 300,000 jobs in Australia for people to protect the economy, government, and the, and, uh, uh, and the private or the medical sector. So, you know, it's a political decision. You're quite right. If it had been a Chinese company, certain uh, anti-Chinese elements in this country, not all of them. This country is not anti-Chinese. A lot of the politicians say things like this to get votes or to make themselves popular. But you're right. Sounds like a double standard. It's a political decision. But if it were a Chinese uh, company, they'd have something else to say about it. Mm. I uh, I wouldn't overly emphasize uh, the uh, the the angle here where it's it is pretty much what it is it's a business opportunity mm. then uh regarding this critical minerals task force um do you think it is part of a us-led effort to reduce global reliance on china when we talk about this particular rare earth industry and if so if that's the case how do you think how would you look at the actual prospect regarding this particular task force? And what do you think Australia will end up gaining from this deal by getting involved in such a task force? Well, the United States has been tied up in recent years over uh, supply lines and things like that. And uh, it's worried where it's going to get its minerals for its uh, its batteries and its chips and all the rest of it. And, of course, uh, uh, China has a, a certain... Um, deposits there that you can't get anywhere else. Um, the uh, Australian rare earths are really under the ground. They're not discovered. I mean, Australia is a big place. It's about the size of the continental United States with only 26 million people. So this is a commitment to go uh, looking for the materials. Uh, what is the prospect? Very little. I mean, the Australian uh, uh, miners here are mainly tied up providing China with iron ore and coal. I mean, you know, this, there's, not a, there's not a lot of uh, uh, wiggle room here in the population. I mean, Microsoft wants to create 300,000 jobs. Who, who's going to do that? And where are they going to get all these mining companies to get involved in security interests? Not going to happen. So, you know, these are just maybe just a bridge too far. Mm. Then regarding the infrastructure programs or projects, that have been earmarked for those uh, Pacific Islands countries. Uh, regarding this point, the Biden administration claims that both Biden and Anthony Albanese, the Australian prime minister, see this initiative as, quote-unquote, imperative to focus on the Pacific Islands. Now, Professor, how would you look at this, um, quote-unquote, imperative initiative? Why do you think we didn't see this imperative uh, until until recently, well, as, as soon as uh, 
Chinese investors and others and, you know, the, the Belt and Road Initiatives. As soon as they got involved in the South Pacific, the Australians got very excited because it, it looked like, um, you know, maybe giant Chinese warships would be closer than they would be otherwise. And they got very upset about it. And the Americans made some noise about trying to get into New Guinea, which is uh, uh, sort of within Australia's uh, uh, operating theater. I mean, uh, New Guinea doesn't do much without Australia's involvement. And so they, they, they got very con concerned about this. And you have to understand something. The, the Australians have a, a commitment to America. I mean, it's military and defense industry. And the military is only about 73,000 people, only 30,000 uh, in, in uniforms. And they, they have kind of a uh, a tendency to go along with the Americans on most of this stuff for fear of abandonment, as they did after the Second World War, during the beginning of the Second World War. I mean, uh, Britain was the, uh, the the main attachment, and then America replaced it. And keep in mind that the famous ANZUS Treaty, which is the basis for AUKUS and all the rest of it, was 90%, 90% designed against the revival of Japanese imperialism. It had nothing to do with Chinese. Had to do with the Japanese reviving again, and so uh, Australia is armed forces and, and navy and all the rest of it. They're interoperable with American forces, but you know Australia has sort of a uh, a primal attachment to America. I, I mean, uh, Australia is far more interested in America in terms of its future than America is is interested in Australia. What America is interested in is Australia, the Australian land. They like to put troops mm. and forces in the Northern Territory. They like to uh, have visiting rights for these ships. They want to build nuclear ships here and they want to house them. They want to house, uh, they want to uh, have American naval ships and British ships uh, dock here on a regular basis. I mean, Australia is, is an aircraft carrier. That's why General MacArthur was so uh, um, successful in, in, in the Second World War in keeping Australia free from the, the Japanese. It, it's an attachment. If Australia were less fearful, there'd be less reliance on the United States. And so, in a sense, it's formalistic. Uh, in a deeper sense, it may mean nothing at all. Mm. So let's take a look at the bigger picture here because – um, you know better than I do, Professor. Since Albanese came into office, um, uh, Canberra has been taking some steps to try to repair its relations with Beijing. And in early next months, um, uh, Prime Minister Anthony Albanese himself will personally pay a visit to China. He will travel to Shanghai, to Beijing, to attend an important, a very important import expo held in Shanghai. But on the other hand, judging from his trip to Washington, D.C. this week, do you think um, under his office, Australia is going back to its old way in which uh, this country relies on the Americans for security and then on China for trade? Well, it may look like that on the surface, but I think... The Albanese government, which is center-left, and it was basically, the Labor Party is basically uh, a socialist party, uh, is looking for friendly relations, uh, harmonious relations with China. It's far more pro-Chinese than the previous administration. Penny Wong doesn't want to quarrel with China, and Albanese doesn't want to quarrel with China. The Australian exporter, who depends on a uh, your purchase of uh, iron ore, coal, and Australia, uh, Chinese students, they don't want to quarrel with China. In, in a sense, the, uh, the the quarrels with China over the past seven or eight years were politically motivated by uh, the Liberal Party, which is uh, uh, more on the right, more like the Tories. Mm. So uh, I think uh, this, uh, this, this Albanese administration doesn't want to quarrel with China. And keep in mind, when it came time to place an Australian ambassador in Washington, they chose Kevin Rudd, who, while, you know, fairly yeah. balanced on the outside, is pro-Chinese. He's not going to war with China over Taiwan or anything else. I mean, uh, Kevin Rudd sees the future, and the future is is that mm -hmm. we have to live through, with peaceful coexistence in this neck of the woods. So this administration is far more pro-Chinese than you could ever imagine. Thank you very much for joining us and for providing your rational analysis. That was Professor Joseph Syracuse, Dean of Global Futures with Curtin University in Australia. You are listening to World Today. For more, you can follow us on X at CGTM Radio 
We'll be back after a short break. You are listening to World Today. I'm Ding Han in Beijing. China has criticized a report from the Pentagon in the United States detailing China's military strength and nuclear arsenal. Chinese Defense Ministry spokesperson Wu Qian has described this particular report as exaggerated hype about "quote unquote" non-existent Chinese military threat. Wu has also defended China's military strength as necessary for safeguarding national interests and as a deterrent to future war. So joining us now on the line is Dr. Tan Jianqun, director for the Diplomacy Studies Center with Hunan Normal University. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah. So, apart from、uh, providing some detailed information about China's nuclear arsenal, etc., etc., this particular、mm-hmm. report by the Pentagon also says China may be considering how to build conventionally armed intercontinental range missile system. That is that are capable of striking the United States one day. So, Professor Chen, what is your thought about this this particular claim in this report? It's really a good capability for any country if they can have got such a technology. It it should look at the intention and also the capability. I'm sure every you know major power、uh, would like to have such a capability, but. Uh, if you look at the intention or the military strategy of China, you can see we cannot use、uh, any you know ballistic missiles against any other country if we you know in、uh, in a peaceful、uh, environment. So I think this is actually a routine job for China, for any major power to develop such a capability. But this is only capability. We should look at the intention or the strategy or gui- guideline for. Uh, China's military development,、mm. and in the meantime, it seems another so-called concern that this particular Pentagon report has expressed over there is about the possibility of China building more overseas naval bases. Why do you think the United States or Pentagon is concerned about this at a time when the U.S. military itself is operating somewhere around eight hundred bases across the world? I don't think、uh, China will build more and more in the、uh, military bases in other countries. This is not our policy. Even,、uh, China only have、uh, one military facility in、uh, Africa. It's only a facility for the operations of escort,、uh, you know, task forces in Aden Bay to fight against、uh, the terrorism or the、uh, mm. piracy in that area. So I think. Uh, I don't think China at this moment、uh, has any, you know, plan to uh, uh, have more and more military bases abroad. This is actually a little bit tricky, you know, issue、uh, initiated by the United States. Yeah, and actually,、uh, digging deeper into that, actually, some some particular American America-based think tanks or or media or or other kind of、um, market-based research companies. They have warned about the possibility or the likelihood of China building a navy base over there in Cambodia for quite some time. What do you think has prompted them to make such kind of、uh, projection or or speculation? No, I don't think China will have any military base in Cambodia even in the future.、Uh, the construction of the harbor facilities actually is a civilian, you know,、uh, project for. Uh, the two countries, I mean, for China and、uh, for Cambodia, to cooperate in the infrastructure construction in that country. So I think I don't think the Chinese government or the Chinese military will have such a, a facility as a military base、uh, at this moment or in the future. Mm. So this、uh, Pentagon report also came after the United States accused the POA Air Force of more so-called aggressive behavior 
because the、mm-hmm. U.S. claim in this regard is that there have been more than 180 instances of POA risky or aggressive air intercepts against American air aircrafts in the airspace above the South China Sea so far、uh-huh. this year. In your understanding, which side is performing aggressively here? <laughs> It's、uh, quite clear that the United States, in the send the task forces、uh, over the sea, and also send、uh, their reconnaissance and the surveillance、uh, aircraft or even、uh, jets to the sensitive areas very close to the、uh, territory of China. So this is actually、uh, another tricky,、uh, you know,、uh, issue、uh, put forward by the、uh, Pentagon this time. Uh, they would like to take all the you know, activities、uh, by the Chinese Air Force or by the, the Chinese Navy as a threat, as an aggression to the、uh, region of peace and stability. I don't think this is a, a rational, you know, issue for、uh, for for any country to understand the situation in the South China Sea, in the Yangtze Sea, or、uh, very close to Taiwan Island.、Mm. So I mean, Doctor Ten, you know better than I do because when we talk about this kind of、uh, exaggerated hype on the U.S. part about the so-called Chinese military strength or military、uh, threat, this is not this is not something new. So. At the end of the day, do you think there is anyone or any particular interest group that will stand to benefit from this kind of U.S. hype about the so-called Chinese military threat? Yeah, there are several you know,、uh, considerations by by Pentagon to exaggerate the military capability of China. I'm sure the military development or build-up of、uh, China is only.、Um, A、routine job for any major power to have,、uh, you know, strong enough、uh, military to defend its territory, to safeguard the sovereignty and the integrity of the country, and uh, such a、uh, you know, development, of course, should be、uh, rational and should be uh, uh, on the、uh, agenda of any、uh, country. So I, I don't think the、uh, military development or modernization of PRA. Will give any threat to the regional、uh, peace and stability, or even to the United States. That's ridiculous to say that、uh, the military modernization or the fast development of a PRA、uh, will give a threat to the regional peace and stability or to the United States. Mm. Thank you very much for putting this issue into perspective. That was Dr. Tan Jianqun, director for the Diplomacy Studies Center with Hunan Normal University. You are listening to World Today. We'll be back. Hello, I am Dr. Digby James Wren, a political analyst and international relations scholar specializing in China area studies. World Today offers unmatched in-depth perspectives on China's politics, economics, business, technology, and society. World Today's team of reporters and contributors provides valuable information from all of the world's major economies. I hope you can join me on World Today for the very best insights and news from China on China and help to build a better understanding of China's role in the world today. You are listening to World Today. I'm Ding Hen in Beijing. China plans to issue one trillion yuan or some hundred and forty billion U.S. dollars in additional government bonds in the fourth quarter to raise the country's disaster relief capabilities. These debts will be transferred to local governments. Half of them will be used over the course of this year, while the remaining parts will be carried over to next year. The funds will be used in eight major areas, including post-disaster rebuilding and flood control and prevention. It's estimated that the new issuance we are talking about here will drive China's physical deficit ratio for 2023 to 3.8 percent,、uh, from a target of 3 percent set at the beginning of this year. So, for more on this, my colleague Zhao Yang earlier had a speaking with Dr. Yao Shujie, Chongqing Professor of Economics with Chongqing University. So, Professor Yao, China plans to issue one trillion yuan or 140 billion U.S. dollars in additional government bonds during the fourth quarter. So, why is this move, and what's the purpose of it? I think the main purpose is probably to leave more liquidity to the market. So that、um, the the Chinese annual economic growth rate would be 
will be achieved for the target of 5%. Uh, although, although it may not be entirely necessary for this 1 trillion yuan to achieve the 5%, but possibly the central government and also the monetary authority is considering not only the last quarter of 2023, but is also considering into the next year, 2024, which is going to be a major year uh, for the 14th five-year plan. So the central government must have uh, a target for next year to make sure that the 14th five-year plan would also be uh, fulfilled despite the COVID-19 pandemic during the early years of this uh, decade. Mm. And observers say this extra bond will be allocated to local governments through the transfer payments in a move that is uh, expected to optimize the local debt structure and ease the fiscal burden of the uh, local governments. So how could this help address the problems in the real economy, do you think? Well, one trillion yuan is quite a significant amount. I think uh, some local governments have been suffering from the natural disasters which may help slow down the economic growth. So the, 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 you know, the central bond going into this area is basically to boost the local economy momentum so that economic growth in the exhausted area would also be recovered quickly to fulfill their potential. So um, usually this kind of government bond uh, as this particular magnitude is quite significant in the last quarter of the year, it does signify that some local government may face some uh, real difficulty if there is no central government support. So this is the purpose uh, at this particular moment, to ease the difficulty of those areas which have been affected by the disaster. Mm. And this move is actually estimated to drive the country's fiscal uh, deficit ratio this year to 3.8% from the target of 3%. So how do you explain this? What signal does it send? Yeah, 3.8% is, uh, in most uh, textbook cases, uh, it is manageable. It was not going to uh, you know, damage the market by raising the consumer price, also the inflation. Now, raising to 3.8%, there are two arguments for this. Apart from the first argument, uh, the need to boost the local economy, the national economy, but also uh, the CPI, the Consumer Price Index, and also the PPI, which are relatively low. That means that even the deficit is raising to 3.8%. It may not have a significant effect on the inflation. So this is why the monetary authorities find it quite easy uh, to maintain a relatively low level of inflation while increase the level of deficit. So uh, it is a relatively a, a, a low risk strategy for boosting the national economy. In my view. And in the third quarter, China's economy grew by 4.9% year-on-year, beating the market expectations. And we are seeing the economic recovery momentum has the solid foundation. And also the global financial institutions also raised their forecast for China's economy this year. So what are the emerging growth drivers in the economy from your perspective? Well, the main, the main driver is the recovery of the economy activity in different fields, apart from agriculture, manufacturing. It's more so in service sector and also the consumption uh, you know, component of the national economy. The investment this time, uh, part of the money would be uh, basically to solve the, the, the structural difficulty in some localities. Uh, because of the, the disasters that have been uh, taking place in different parts of the economy. But more importantly, I think the national bond would be uh, even more directed to the high-tech industry and also uh, the high-level, high-quality service industry. So these are the main areas that China will try to focus. Mm-hmm. Of course, agriculture is still uh, the main uh, very important uh, sector because of the food security issue. Uh, we have a big population. Agriculture is always very important. But in terms of value added, in terms of uh, you know further growth, it would depend more than 
agriculture, which is uh, in this case uh, the services and manufacturing sector. And、mm. all these are internal environment, but、uh, for the external environment,、uh, Professor Yao, what do you think are the main factors that will impact China's economy for this and next year? The external environment is more complicated and less controllable、uh, by the Chinese government.、Mm. I think because of the the weakening of the the weakening of the major economy,、uh, such as Japan, Europe. And the United States, which are the traditional、uh, economy driver of the global economy, but you can see most of these countries, the economy expansion is basically through、uh, you know、uh, inflation rather than from real economy activity、uh, growth. So because of the expansion in this major economy depends on inflation rather than on real、uh, economy growth. The demand、uh, from the international market is weakening, so China has been trying to diversify export to the less traditional、uh, trading partner, to the Belt and Road Initiative,、uh, you know, country also Southeast Asia continue to、uh, be important, and also in Africa, in 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 Central Asia and so on and so forth, Latin America included. So、um, this is the complication. China is facing, you know, a, a fairly、uh, clear structural transformation of diversification for international trade.、Mm-hmm. The second,、um, the second element is the uncertainty about the China-U.S. relationship, which has been, you know, traumatized、uh, over the last few years, and there's no sign that the two economies will come together to help each other. Instead, the U.S.、Uh, Government is stepping up the kinds of technological embargo, and this would be another issue. The the, the other issue I think is the structure,、uh, the the climate change issue, which has been affecting quite a lot of country, which slow down the、uh, the consumption, slow down the productivity, and also may also help to, to help transfer the the, the consumption. Manufacturing structure in those economies,、mm. so China have to be、uh, fully flexible in adapting to this、uh, change. Not only the trade diversification, but also the structural change. So, do you think the foreign direct investment will continue to flow into the Chinese market? Because the number of newly established foreign investment enterprises reached thirty-seven thousand in the first three quarter of this year. This is up thirty-two percent year on year. So, will the multinational companies keep investing in China?、Uh, this is for sure. I mean,、uh, China is now the major driver of the global economy. The China contributed the largest in terms of the manufacturing sector, and 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 more and more in the service sector as well.、Uh, and the Chinese economy in real term is still expanded this year, as as we say, maybe five percent. Five percent is much higher than the the top ten economy、uh, apart from India. So、um, China will continue to、uh, to be the economy engine. Of the of the world and international business, I mean, the, particularly the multinational companies, they are highly aware that、uh, China is a great、uh, opportunity. Not only the size of the market, but also the technological progress has been very remarkable,、uh, especially in the new emerging uh, industries such as uh, uh, new energy. Uh, new vehicles, new energy vehicles, and also the the polar power panels industry, wind power,、uh, you know, industries. China is now a, a key player in the national arena,、uh, particularly、uh, in this century.、Uh, China and the United States has、uh, instantly emerged to be the two major leading、uh, economy and. Multinational companies—they always go to the the place they can make profit. They can expand their business. Yao Shujian, Chengkong Professor of Economics with Chongqing University, talking to my colleague Zhao Yang. You are listening to World Today. Stay with us. You are listening to World Today. I'm Ding Hanin, Beijing. 
New projections by the International Monetary Fund say Germany is going to overtake Japan in 2023 as the number three economy in the world. A major factor of Japan's expected slip is said to be a slide in the yen against the U.S. dollar and the euro. The U.S. Federal Reserve and the European Central Bank have all raised their interest rates from pandemic lows in order to tackle domestic inflation. However, the Bank of Japan has stayed in a kind of stimulus mode as the Japanese central bank is looking to nurture price growth after years of deflation. So, joining us now on the line is Dr. Mike Bastian, senior lecturer with the University of Southampton in the UK. Thank you very much for joining us, Mike. Hello. So, although Japan has experienced a very prolonged period of low GDP growth, it has somehow managed to hold onto its position, its place as the world's number three economy for more than a decade already. Actually, last time it was、um, overtaken, it was surpassed by the Chinese economy.、Uh, I guess back in 2010. So, with that in mind, how would you look at this latest IMF projection? <clears throat> well, yes, I think it has. <clears throat> it's been a long time coming, and I think it has a lot to do with, as you've alluded to, the the interest rate policies in America,、uh, the UK, and and Europe. So, the ECB, the Fed,、uh, and the Bank of England have been raising interest rates in order to tackle inflation. They see that's the best way. That's obviously attracting investment. Into an influx into their their currencies, which is strengthening those, and the weak yen has also led to a sort of pushing up, a sort of artificial、um, raising of the value of Germany's、uh, GDP as well in U.S. dollar terms in particular. So I think there's there's a little bit going on with currency currency issues and interest rate issues.、Uh, but that said, I think it is. Uh, quite a worrying time for Japan, given that the indicators also suggest that this is a, a long-term, steady,、uh, stable German, German economic rise.、Mm. So, by the way,、uh, in your observation of the economic situation, why do you think, at a time when inflation has already posed so many problems in other developed economies, notably in Uh, in the UK, in in North America, and in continental European economies, why do you think,、uh, if we consider that as a background information, why do you think Japan is still tackling deflation? Well, Japan's as we said, Japan's、um, the, the, the period of deflation is quite lengthy. So this has been going on for for quite a long time now. So years of deflation、mm. have. Pushed or, or led the, the Japanese central bank and the Japanese government to, to as you say, follow a policy、um, of stimulus mode and, and not follow the interest rate rise. I think one of the concerns is, and one, one distinguishing feature of Japan's economy, of course, is the aging population, which is much greater and faster than it is in other major economies, and the declining birth rate. So I think that's led to this this stimulus mode, but also the length of period. Deflation. I think if they feel like they feel if they follow the path that the、um, the Americans, the British, and the Europeans have,、uh, that it will exacerbate the situation. So I, I don't really see this changing. I, I see a, a stimulus package possibly emerging soon from the the Japanese government again to, to stimulate economic recovery. Hmm. So, in addition to this,、um, say, monetary policy by central bank issue or uh, this uh, local currency issue. What do you think is the major threat, or the major hurdle, or the major headache facing the Japanese economy right now? Well, again, I think the, the just to come back, give you some statistics. The, the aging population. This is、mm. having a, an active economic. Uh, resource base with, with, with younger generations coming through is a real concern. For example, by 2036, not far away,、uh, people aged over 65 will represent a third of the population. Now that is very, very significant and far greater, for example, than it is in Germany. So I think that's having that workforce, that 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 aging workforce, and not that younger, vibrant workforce, is a, is a major issue to、uh, the the long term. 
success of their economy. They, they also rely very, very heavily on, on manufactured goods. Or they're an exporting nation, so they're, they're yeah. very, very much um, hostage to the world economy and fluctuations they're, they're, well, in that area as well. So I think that's, that's one of the major drawbacks that, that the Japan, Japanese economy has, that it's so dependent on, on other economies being a major exporting nation. Mm. So frankly speaking, Mike, do you think a prospect that Germany might overtake Japan as the number three economy uh, by the end of this year and would it necessarily mean that Germany has a bright economic future? I mean, not necessarily. You've got to dig beneath some of these quite superficial indicators. Certainly, the, the, the economies are similar in some respects. So they're two of the largest exporting nations. Uh, so you, you could compare them in, in that respect. And if you look at the the the, the economic situation and the, the income levels, so the average German household, the average German worker is significantly better off than the Japanese worker. And again, as I said, the, the indicators are suggesting that this is a long-term German surge in its sort of economic might. So I think it is worrying for the Japanese, and, and I think the, the, the German economy as number three economy is probably here to stay. It's always been the giant in Europe, so it always benefits much, much more from any recovery, which we will see at some point in the European economy. It's very, very much there spearheading the, the overall economic um, situation across Europe, which is expanding. So I do feel that, that the Japanese government, the Bank of Japan, really have to relook and revisit their, their policies and, and think of something quite, uh, quite spectacular when it comes to a stimulus package to put the Japanese economy back on track and perhaps rivaling the German economy again, but which may not happen. Mm. Now, like you alluded to uh, when you were addressing my last question, some people say uh, these two economies, I mean, uh, Germany and, and Japan, they actually share similar economic challenges, including their businesses relying heavily on fax machine, which, by the way, is often seen as a symbol of their unshakable bureaucracies as both countries are facing some kind of an uphill battle in terms of digitalization. What is your thought about this? I think they are similar to, uh, in many respects. So, so you highlight um, a couple of areas there, particularly when, you know, when it comes to, to things like fax machines and um, bu bureaucracy and, and bu bureaucratic uh, systems that need to modernize and need to modernize more quickly so that there is a perhaps a sort of competitive race here going on. And the, the, the two economies are good examples of, of, of how quickly one perhaps could digitalize more than the other. It, it has to be said when it comes to Germany, they do tend to, to modernize very quickly. They mm. tend to adapt to export conditions very, very quickly uh, and, and basically meet demand and, and are generally very, very market-led. And I think that's probably going to be something that we'll see more of and probably behind these figures as well. And that perhaps is, again, another worrying feature for, for Japan and the Japanese economy. The digitalization and the modernization mm. of the German economy, I can see, yeah. um, moving at a faster pace. Yeah. Thank you very much. That was Dr. Mike Bastian joining us from the UK. That's all the time for this edition of World Today. I'm Ding Han in Beijing. Bye for now.